1: trillion. That is the gap between what pension funds have and what they will need by 2050. Uh, Our next guest has been studying the brewing pension crisis, and we are very lucky to have Han Yik, head of institutional investors at the World Economic Forum. Uh, He has worked in the pension industry on all sides and is intimately aware of this. Han, can you talk about the problem globally? Is it the same everywhere? And uh, are pensions dealing with this by lowering the returns assumptions and increasing the contributions of members?
2: Sure. Thanks for having me. I think, um, it, first of all, it is a global crisis. We've looked at this analysis uh, on a very global level. Uh, our, our, we have a project which we're running called retirement investment systems reform, and we're looking and working with countries from around the world. I will say some countries are in better shape than other countries, but overall, if you look at what it means to have the gap, um, you have liabilities and assets. The Liabilities are, you have uh, retirement ages when pension payments start, and the bad news right now from a pension's perspective is because we're all living longer, uh, it means that the pension benefits have to last us much, much longer, and that's the problem that all countries are facing, you know, longevity is increasing, yay for us overall, yeah. but from a pension perspective, that's putting strain. If nothing else is changing, it's just math that uh, the amount that we need to uh, to account for uh, the amount of money just needs to go up. That money needs to come from somewhere.
0: Is the is the dependence on defined contribution rather than defined benefit plans contributing to this problem? I think the shift from
2: defined benefit to defined contribution has caused um, uh, a different uh, a shift in. The responsibility of, of clear pensions, yeah. So the issue there is that now the individual bears the burden of being their own actuary, being being their own asset manager, um, and and the, the burden of the savings themselves. So that's actually caused quite a bit of uh, uh, of gap as well.
0: So is that considered to be a positive element or a negative element? Um, uh, it, I would I mean, say if you have a lot of different people who are personally responsible for their own retirement, it gets very difficult to implement any kind of change. If for example you and people at the World Economic Forum and a variety of government officials sit down and figure out a solution then it doesn't it make it more challenging to actually uh, affect any kind of change? I
2: think that's I think that's true. Uh, one of the issues is it is a global issue um, but the solutions will have to be done at a more uh, regional level. Um, If you look at uh, the US specifically, the 401k situation there is a little different than defined contribution schemes in other countries. So for example, the Netherlands has done a very good job in terms of a collectivized DC plan. Uh, because it's mandatory. It's, it's mandatory. Um, also, look at Australia. They have mandatory contributions. Now, the word mandatory here in the U.S., not so popular.
1: Yeah, no one's getting elected. <laughs> <for that. laughs>
2: exactly. So sometimes the solutions are, um, can be difficult politically. But in the U.S., for example, one of the things that, um, uh, that can help is auto-enrollment and auto-escalation. Right. So the idea, still maintain choice, but have people opt out rather than opt in.
1: So I want to talk about the investment strategies of these pensions. So what Mm -hmm. they do is they take the contributions they get, they invest them in assets like bonds and stocks and private equity and hope to earn a return in order to meet the seven or eight percent obligations that they uh, need to pay out each year. First of all, some have ratcheted back those expectations for returns, but widely, people do not think they've come down enough. How much have you looked into potential losses in some riskier strategies that pensions have been going into in order to get those bigger returns that they are still seeking? In other words, like the private equity, for example, uh, which uh, firms have a record amount of cash and are investing in uh, companies at peak valuations, potentially.
2: Yeah. So um, on our end, we're looking uh, a little more, uh, I guess, a high level than that. In terms of, um, in terms of, this is the problem. These are the steps that are needed to solve it. From the investment strategy perspective, that's something that um, that uh, the individual pension funds will need to tackle. But it's an area that um, that uh, will. Need to be examined because the problem when you, once you have a gap, you have with the liabilities and the assets, it's really the gap sounds like one number, but it's really based on two numbers. I just wrote a blog uh, that the Georgetown, uh, Georgetown Center for Retirement Initiatives published, where I talk about this tale of two numbers. Um, once you have a gap where the liabilities are higher than the assets, you need to close that, which means the assets need to be growing faster than than the liabilities. And if the liabilities are growing because we're living longer, if nothing else changes on that front i.e. if we don't increase retirement age, if we don't reduce benefits, um, then you know, then the liability will continue to grow at a certain rate. Then we need to increase assets in order to close that gap. Um, now, the problem then becomes what you said. Do we uh, go into uh, asset classes uh, that can be potentially riskier, but have a potentially uh, greater long-term return? Um, I would argue that steps need to be made on both sides in order to close that gap. Because just mathematically, it cannot work out if one number is increasing quicker than the other.
0: We're talking about numbers, and I'm wondering whether the benefits that we're describing that will not be there mm-hmm. if we continue on our current path, can they in any way be replaced by the actual services that need to be rendered to elderly people? And I mean things like healthcare, shelter, food, and so on, in other words, you put a price on them, but that's really just a mechanism. The mm-hmm. actual service itself doesn't have to be priced, does it? Um, mm,
2: that's a great, <laughs> great question or a great point. Um, I would say that for our analysis, the way we've looked at it is in terms of um, uh, as a replacement ratio, in terms of. Uh, uh, the fact that you may need a smaller percentage of your current income in order to maintain, maintain a certain lifestyle. Now that's um, something uh, that is uh, usually a good approximation and allows us to compare uh, country, uh, different countries because um, that does factor into account healthcare standards, you know, the, things, the cost of living, things like that in different countries. Um, in general, uh, what's needed though in retirement, you cannot separate what's needed in retirement with healthcare. Um, that's something we're going to explore in the third phase of the project most likely because um, the two are, are definitely linked. If you live longer, what's the quality of life? What's the cost needed for that? And that will p- play a huge impact on terms of what's needed as a pension.
0: Tell people how they can
2: just learn more about your work. Uh, sure. Uh, I would say you can go to the World Economic Forum website. Uh, we have a, a page on the Retirement in- Investment Systems Reform Project. We have a white paper. Um, And as I mentioned in the Georgetown uh, Center for Retirement Initiatives, I have a new blog post outlining hopefully in uh, easy language in terms of what this means uh, in terms of the gap, the tail of two numbers.
0: Thank you very much for being with us. Much appreciated. Han Yick is the head of Institutional Investors at the World Economic Forum. And uh, coming up, of course, uh, we have Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power, and Law. And uh, Amy Morris, what have you got on tap for us?
1: You know, Facebook's reviewing the invitation for Zuckerberg to testify on Capitol Hill. So we'll talk to Congressman Greg Walden, the lawmaker who extended that invitation
0: will be listening. That's coming up. Bloomberg politics, policy, power, and law. Thanks for listening. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host and colleague, Lisa Abramowitz. This is Bloomberg. We are broadcasting from the Quinnipiac Game 8 Forum. Global asset management education is the topic of the day here at the New York Hilton. And coming up, uh, there'll be a conversation with Neil Kashkari. We, uh, he is the Federal Reserve President of the Federal Reserve Bank of uh, Minneapolis, interviewed by our own Kathleen Hayes. Uh, right now, we have David Auerlich. He is Managing Director and Special Advisor to the Chairman of Gamco. Assets under management at Gamco $40 billion, but. He also happens to hold the title of a commissioner and chair of the investment committee of the New York State Insurance Fund. Mr. Aurelick, thank you very much for being here, much appreciated. Uh, Tell people what is the remit of the New York State Insurance Fund so we understand what we're talking about.
3: Sure, Um, thank you for having me. Uh, The New York State Insurance Fund is a 107 year old state agency that is a monoline insurance company. Um, It uh, writes workman comp insurance policies uh... covering approximately thirty seven percent of every worker in new york state uh... from large policyholders um, million-plus to uh, most of the policyholders are five ten thousand uh... annually uh... Yep. it's a off-budget state agency It has uh... uh... twenty six hundred full-time employees um, seventeen billion dollar fund uh... offices located in Fifteen offices located in, uh, in uh, New York throughout yeah. new york state
1: so this is, uh, this is a, mm. an agency that has to have a long term approach and has to meet a certain amount of returns each year to meet potential obligations you 're a few weeks away from changing your investment thesis, your investment strategy. Can you give us a taste of kind of how you 're planning to change your allocation?
3: Sure, um, just so you understand so um, approximately ten or eleven billion dollars is managed internally to meet our liabilities, paying insurance claims. The balance is used to uh, provide uh, a backstop in case our actuaries say we need more uh, money in our liability pool so we can take it from the surplus. So the asset allocation um, is uh, that we're shortly going to complete uh, will provide us with uh, additional diversification within that portfolio, so um, we will expect to see um, investments in alternatives. Um, broadly speaking, private markets, which includes, it could be opportunistic credit, it could be you know, bank loans, um, um, it could be private lending strategy. You're
1: increasing your allocations to That's that. That's
3: correct. Private equity. Uh, Uh, could include infrastructure, real estate. Um, So those are going to be um, uh, new asset classes for us. So we're going to be one of the, uh, we're building out a alternatives portfolio de novo. Um, And uh, so that's going to be quite uh, an interesting um,
0: undertaking for us. At this event, there are many young people i 'm wondering if you could explain what is it you would like to communicate to them? What message would you like to leave them with?
3: Uh, one of the things that um, uh, I will be talking about is the perspective of a long term investor um, and how we are um, um, patient uh, we don 't get caught up in um, uh, sort of quarterly monthly daily gyrations that we have to be consistent, we have to be uh, um, uh, patient investors, Uh, we have to have a diversified portfolio to spread out our risk across um, uh, different environments through different markets and uh, hopefully uh, um, engage them in a dialogue because they are students and I expect them to ask us a bunch of questions.
1: You know, one thing that uh, I I thought was interesting as we were talking ahead of this is uh, that you are reducing your allocation somewhat to active managers, at least in the large cap space, Uh, although uh, replacing that with passive uh, instead. um, I find it interesting, is this basically a bifurcation where you're basically going into passive for the broad market exposure and then trying to increase your exposure to more esoteric markets? Is that basically the broader thesis here?
3: Um, I think um, what we'd experienced over the, the last 10 years is this, you know, the market has gone up and you can capture that in a passive index for a lot less than active management. Um, I, I don't necessarily believe in that same thesis um, in small and mid cap. I think active management um, is, is adding alpha and adding value. Um, I also think that in a, in volatile markets uh, you need active market you need active you need active management um, and uh, so it's it's strategic it's hard to um, uh, argue that large cap active managers have been consistently outperforming the benchmark as opposed to uh, passive managers um, yeah so hopefully um, we still have active on on large cap um, but it made sense to have a portion of it uh, managed passively.
1: David Auerlich, thank you so much for being with us. Have fun on your panel, and uh, best of luck. David Auerlich, Managing Director and Special Advisor to the Chairman for GAMCO, overseeing $40 billion. Also, Commissioner and Chair of the Investment Committee for the New York State uh, Insurance Fund. Does buy the dip Still apply with us to discuss Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist at Federated, friend to the show. Phil, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Phil it's a
4: pleasure. Thanks for having me back.
1: So we've seen a little bit of red in the past yep. few days. Um, in the past, there is a Pavlovian response to immediately buy any dip, no matter how small. Today, we saw that in pre-market trading was down. It is now up largely, except for the NASDAQ. Were you in there buying?
4: No, we we weren't, and and um, so yeah, you had this two and a half percent correction yesterday. Everyone's scared to death about the impact on tariffs and trade wars, and that's all reasonable and understandable. Is that what they were scared about? I think so. Um, uh, now, if 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 you were ready to turn here today, would have been a big move day up, and the S and P had a nice. You know, green in the futures, but then I guess we're largely flat, maybe yeah. fractionally yes. higher. That that tells you that we're not there yet. You know, the kids in the back of the car. Are we there yet? We're not there yet. And <laughs> and from our perspective, again, you got to remember sort of the the typical pattern here. You had this nice move up in the beginning of the year, and then this waterfall collapse. we were down twelve percent, and then you bounce, and then what you what you need to do technically is sort of retest that low, and we haven't. That retest. That's where we are now. It's that retest process, and and so uh, you know our best guess is that you probably are looking at a retest of the 200-day moving average, probably over the course of the next couple of weeks, um, uh, ahead of the earnings season. I think the earnings season is going to be pretty good, but that suggests that you've got, I think, a little more downside. I think that 200-day moving average is around twenty. Twenty-five eighty-four. Twenty-five eighty. That's you a like good that? number. You, okay, you, but
0: I got the advantage. I have the actual yeah, chart in front you're of me. Like, yeah,
4: you're like a savant. Pam. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah a savant <laughs> with a computer. And yeah, right, exactly. In my dreams. Uh, it, you know, okay, so uh, twenty-five uh, eighty-four. So I want to know who do you believe are all the smart sellers or the market participants since January 26th that have caused this uh, increase in volatility. It's not like the companies are all different. It's not like the economy is all different. There's gotta be something that explains why when you look at a chart of the S&P 500, it looks really lovely going up to the 26th of January, and then from then on in, it looks like a heart patient who's having a stroke.
4: So. Uh, understand that the stock market from just before the election back in 16 through that January 26th aforementioned peak, stock market was up like 41% or some ridiculous number. And the reality is that, that looking at some of the fundamentals, looking at some of the technicals, the, the 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 move up in January, and I think we were up like 75 or 8% in that first three or four weeks, was probably ahead of itself. And And we were due for a correction. And we were due, frankly, for a... A a, 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 uh, a more healthy spate of volatility. The VIX last year was was sitting between like 8 and
0: 10. Yeah, yeah no, I know, but, but Phil, but who? Or is it a machine? Because I understand, you know, it was ahead of itself, but I mean, yeah. every time we use those pronouns, there's got to be something behind it. The market doesn't move all by itself. There's either a human being, or there's a decision being taken, or there's a machine that's programmed that says, you know, when it does X, sell, or when it does Y, buy.
4: So, we're we're told, we're hearing that there were some algos, you know, some of the really smart hedgies that were, you know, taking some money off the top there back in, in late January. And then we dropped 12% in a couple of weeks. We were dramatically oversold, in our view. We, we did buy there, uh, and we had a nice 08 oh, to 10% bounce or so. And then... Uh, we've been, uh, you know, sort of patiently waiting for the retest here. So I, I think we may get more aggressive in a couple of weeks if we get down to this, you know, 2584 level, as you talk about, Pim. Uh, we are expecting that, that corporate earnings in the first quarter are going to be very solid. We think the full year is going to be very solid. We're at $155 S&P yeah. versus one 130 last year or thereabouts. Now, when we raised our number to 155 you know, in the fourth quarter of last year, people thought we were stargraving lunatics. Well, it, go back and look at your little computer screen there. The consensus has now moved up to 158 for this year. We're now behind the consensus. Yeah. So who's so the what, savant now? Well, so what we thought we saw three or four months ago, the rest of the street is starting to catch on. And that is that the fiscal policy initiatives that are playing out have a positive impact on underlying, you know, company and market fundamentals. So we think the market will grind up over the course of the year. But this period right now is ugly. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, And and this is what we're living through.
1: All right. Uh, You know, it's uncomfortable right now. Mark Zuckerberg and his dinnertime conversations, Facebook shares have declined Uh, since March 16th. They've declined 11 percent. Is this a buying opportunity?
4: Well, I, I don't follow the stock closely enough to make that judgment. I did hear that the forward multiple on on a lot of these sort of fang stocks are, are down pretty sharply. I thought I heard a comment that that Bill Miller, uh, you know, one of the greatest value investors in the game for the last twenty or thirty years, now thinks that the stock could be you know attractive. He may be you know, dipping his toe in the water. So when a guy like Bill Miller says this thing is starting to get cheap, you you, you perk up your pointy little ears and you start to pay attention. So I, I don't know definitively that we're ready to buy. But, you know, if a guy like Bill Miller says it's cheap, then, then maybe it's worth taking a look at.
0: Just quickly, uh, if you take a look at the S&P 500, go back to this time last year, we are up 30 percent. Okay. Uh, is that is that okay? Can you live with that?
4: Yeah, I could certainly live with that. And, and from here, we think we could do mid-teens over the course of this year and next year. We're still at 3,100 this year, 3,500 next year. No recession before, probably 2020 late or 2021 early uh, on the horizon. So we think that, that you know you can still make some, some pretty good money here uh, before we have to worry about positioning more defensively.
0: Thank you very much for being with us. Our expert savant, uh, Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist at Federated. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox along with Lisa Abramowitz. This is Bloomberg. We are broadcasting live from the Quinnipiac Game 8 forum, educating future financial professionals here at the New York Hilton in Midtown Manhattan. And one of the things you're going to have to deal with is political risk. Well, how do you factor in the resignation of a president's attorney or indeed even a replacement as a national security advisor? Well, perhaps the first thing might be to call Mark Rosenberg. He is the chief executive of GeoQuant, and uh, he can be followed on Twitter at geo underscore quant mark uh, Rosenberg uh, thank you very much for being with us Uh, tell us exactly what is geo quant what are you trying to accomplish
5: we what we do is generate uh, high frequency political risk indicators that measure political risk across a range of vectors at the same frequency as financial markets so it's increasingly accepted that politics impact markets Uh, But political risk is rarely quantified and and if it is, it's rarely done at the same frequency as uh, as the market that it impacts. Um, So what GeoQuant does is is produce daily, uh, as objective as possible, political risk indicators um, across each country we cover.
1: Mark, it's got to be tough uh, to objectively quantify the risk. Uh, Before I get into just the specifics of how you do that, please bring us up to date. Where are we now? We have a lot of turmoil. People are talking about the change in the National Security Advisor in Washington, the tariffs. Uh, Right. How much has your uh, geopolitical risk indicators skyrocketed in the U.S.?
5: Well, frankly, the indicators haven't moved. All our risk indicators are up, of course, but they haven't moved that much simply because um, our political risk indicators have increased so much up to this point. I think these events are really a symptom rather than a cause of political risk in the united states political risk has been building up uh, for quite a while and i think uh, up until now or up until at least the first quarter of this year equity markets were were kind of um uh, uh shielded from the impacts um and now uh, that's no longer the case so i think what we're seeing here the instability in the trump administration the uh the hawkish ad hoc policy moves these are symptoms of a significant buildup in political risk in the United States over the past 18 months uh, that are now coming to bear.
0: Well, Mark, uh, to follow up on uh, Lisa's question, so how do you actually do this, and how do you assign some statistical measure to what is, in many cases, a qualitative issue?
5: Sure. Well, uh, political science has made significant strides in recent years in terms of uh, quantifying, quantifying previously qualitative concepts. Uh, so we do have models to use um, just as you as you would in, in economics and finance in order to to systematize and quantify um, the political factors that drive markets and economies and in addition we have new technology to uh, scrape in uh, higher well, what would be an example I,
0: I understand all this but what would be an example yeah. of, of, of putting a, uh, a numerical uh, uh, point scored. on a score yeah. on on sure. something that is uh, let's say the change in the head of the, uh, the president's national security advisor. how do you turn that into a number
5: so we we measure a few things relevant to that we measure geopolitical risk we measure the, the capacity of the state we measure the level of support in a society for the government so if that move impacts any of those indicators our system adjust accordingly yeah. so for instance our, our risk indicator for the United States Increase about 0.9% over the past day, given recent events. Um, and, and that's a function of all the different elements of, of politics that are now riskier um, as a result of recent events. As I said, the jump yeah. is not that big, because we're already at such a high level of risk for the United States. If you look at our indicator on, on your Bloomberg, you'll see, relative to history, the United States is already um, uh, quite high. Um, yeah. So these events don't move the needle all that much.
1: So I'm wondering, you know, there's been a big question as to how much markets are factoring in this political risk. So what's the answer?
5: Well, w- what we found up till now is that political risk has really has been reflected in, in currency markets, particularly the dollar, and, and, and as well as in treasury markets. And I think what you've seen um, over the past quarter is um, the increasing reflection of political equity markets. Um, I think initially is a response to um, concerns about inflation, which I think were ultimately driven by you know, a pro-cyclical fiscal policy and, and concerns about an overheating economy. Uh, and the recent sell-offs have also been politically driven in nature around central trade policies, policy shifts that are more protectionist around uh, the Mueller investigation. Yeah. So I think what you're seeing is that equity markets are now waking up to the political risks that have already been uh, felt in currency and, and, and bond markets.
1: Mark Rosenberg, thank you so much for being with us. Mark Rosenberg, chief executive officer and co-founder of GeoQuant. Uh, their index seeks to measure political risk uh, from both the uh, perhaps ch- personnel changes, but also from a uh, voter uh, partisan level.